0: Good morning. morning. It is good to see so many of you again. It's good to be together. We are thankful for the crowd that's assembled here and the opportunity that we have to study. As we have been emphasizing for several weeks now, we are back to our Sunday night services, and we are so thankful for that. If you have an opportunity to be with us then, we appreciate uh, the encouragement that we can all have when we're together in that way, and we're thankful for the opportunity as well this morning. I appreciate Gary's prayer so much. He often prays very encouraging prayers, but we're thankful for all those who are back with us. We think about those who have been sick and are able to be here again. We ask for prayers for for others like Brother Carl and many others who are facing things ahead of them. But uh, we are thankful for that opportunity. We're grateful that you're here. There's many who are visiting with us this morning. Uh, I think there's a bit of a race to see who has the the most distance traveled to get here this morning. I was thankful to see Sister Shreston this morning as we came in, and good to see her, but then there were others. We've got some from as far as West Virginia, uh, but then we've got some from as far as Florida, so I don't know exactly. We didn't get the mileage to see who's traveled the furthest, but we're glad. And of course, we're thankful that Lukes and Erica are with us, as was stated in the prayer and in our announcements. Um, I think by my recall, the last time we mentioned Luke, he was broken down on the side of the road trying to get to the airport to get to Haiti, uh, but we're thankful that they made it safely there and have made it back again, and as we try to encourage them, not only with financial support and uh, the work that we can do in supporting them that way, but with our prayers, I uh, appreciate the announcement that was made and the chance we have to, to find out and, and ask him about the good work going on. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, you can be turning to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 as we begin our study this morning. I think I've said it a lot here over the course of the last few years, but there are a couple of passages in Scripture that stand out to me as being very, very sad pictures, almost the saddest in all of Scripture. I would say that maybe we would agree the saddest picture, of course, in all of Scripture is Jesus the Christ hanging on the cross, Um, it's interesting that we might say that because it's also one of the most wonderful pictures as we have already made mention of this morning in consideration of his great sacrifice. It's very, very awful and sad, but it's also very wonderful and encouraging. But two of the others that I often share with you, the first one's in Revelation chapter three. We're going to set that aside for just a moment. I ask you to turn to another passage and we'll come back to Revelation three, Uh, but in John chapter six, Jesus has given the people a bunch of tough sayings. He started the passages of the I am statements that we often think about from the gospel account according to John. He talks about being the bread of life. And and John records for us that they are struggling with these things. Constantly they are kind of questioning things. And so the scripture says that not only are they questioning, but they are complaining. Uh, They're struggling with the words of Jesus And we made mention recently that in an interesting throw, maybe throwback or or consideration of 666 being a number that we usually stay away from. In John chapter 6 and verse number 66, we see the passage made or the word stated from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And so we ask the question, it's one thing to, to turn your back when Jesus is not here. You know, we've had, we had bracelets many years ago. Some of you might have owned one. I know I did for a little while, or shirts that said, what would Jesus do? And we asked that question because he's not here. And so we have to try to understand and think about the decisions we would make. And maybe in context of that, what would he do if he were here? But he's not. But in John chapter 6, he is physically standing there. It's easy to badmouth somebody behind their back. It's easy to disown someone or talk about them or or turn your back on them when they're not here. But if you have to face somebody and say those things or walk away, it's a little tougher. And so when Jesus is standing there in the flesh and they turn their back on him, it's hard for me to imagine that. It's, It's awful sad to consider that. And so we ask the question, what are these people lacking What would be the problem that would cause them to turn their back and walk away from the Son of God standing there in the flesh? And what we want to focus on for the next couple of weeks is the idea of zeal or lifelong zeal. If you have your bulletin in front of you and you're following along with the notes, you'll see the title, Lifelong Zeal. Now, this comes from a a recent assignment that I had on a summer series, but it's from a book. There's a brother by the name of Philip Shoemake who wrote a book called Lifelong Zeal. And I was given just a portion of that to speak on, but I thought it'd be wonderful for us to consider, and, and really just over the course of two weeks, I really think the book is meant to be like a class study, a 13-week study, but we're going to kind of take at least a two-week, high-altitude, just very large-scale overview of this idea of zeal or passion. Passion. In fact, the Bible tells us in Titus chapter two in verse 14, which is kind of the theme verse of the book in our study, that we are a people for his own possession. We are his people and we are to be zealous for good works. What a thought to build a lifelong zeal. And it's something that would encourage us over the next few weeks to think about and consider. If we are to be zealous for good works, what exactly are we talking about? And I think we can get a good idea just in a couple of weeks study here. It would help us to begin by understanding what is zeal. That's one of those words that we don't use very often. Maybe passion, building a lifelong passion for God is a little bit of a better title, but lifelong zeal. Well, if you were to look it up on Google or pull out a dictionary and look up, you might see that zeal is defined as great energy or enthusiasm, great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or objective. Now, that's the big dictionary definition, but, but you understand the concept, great energy. We think of passion, someone who is passionate about something, they have great energy, they have great enthusiasm for whatever it may be whatever subject or whatever cause or objective they have. But let's go a step further as we want to make application for ourselves. In fact, Brother Shoemaker in his book makes reference that it is more zeal, lifelong zeal, is more than just the burst of energy that you get from a cup of coffee. Uh, Maybe maybe the better uh, illustration for us is those little containers you see at the gas station, you know, there's hundreds of them right there at the checkout counter. Supposedly you drink one of those and you'll have this burst of energy for, for five hours or for however long it might be. I don't know if you've ever, ever done that, but, but that supposedly gives you a boost. It gives you some energy, but that's not lifelong zeal that the Bible talks about. So the, the book goes further and says that maybe we would do well to define zeal as a burning desire to please God. A burning desire to please God. This is Christian zeal. This is the zeal or the passion that we're after, that we're going to talk about. So how can I, how can we build a passion for God, a zeal for God, a lifelong lasting zeal? And it's important for us to look at one of the main illustrations that the Holy Spirit gives us by inspiration in the Bible. When we think about zeal, it would be the idea of fire. Fire's used all throughout the Bible, really beginning at the very beginning of the Bible. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 24? As man is kicked out of the garden, what's left there at the gate of the garden, but a flaming sword at Eden. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 24, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed with fire and brimstone. We move over to Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. We meet God in a burning fire bush. Exodus 13, the children of Israel are guided by a pillar of fire. And even Exodus 24 and verse number 17, as the people are encountering God almost face to face, they're not of course seeing his face, but his presence is there. The Bible records that God was like a consuming fire in the eyes of the children of Israel. But it's not just the old Testament as there's a little more interaction. You recall Acts chapter two, That great day of Pentecost, as those men are speaking there, there are tongues of fire above their head. And even James chapter 3 and verse number 6, that our tongues are like fire if we are not careful and do not control them. And what we don't have a time for this morning, a full, we don't have time for a full word study. But when we think about the word zeal, we think about the fact that it comes from the zealos in the Greek. If you have your outline, you may see the word zealous there, Z-E-L-O-S, which means to be hot or to have heat. That's what the word means. So it helps us to understand that, that zeal is like to be hot, to have passion. Now, this is, this is the South, right? We, we understand, you can, you can pardon my Southern, but, but there ain't nothing we like better than a good fire around here. That's maybe a little bit of a slow, Southern take on it, but a good fire we like that. It's not so much a heat source for us. It's not so much a light source as it was for some people, but it's just fun. We light stuff on fire. We, we burn stuff. We cook little white balls of sugar and then usually burn those and then eat them. We sit and talk around the fire. We sit and sing around the fire. If you're like me, I usually like just to sit there and stare at the fire for a little while, but that's something that we understand and what would help us, and what we're really going to do is come back next week, God be willing, and focus on this. But the book does a good job. It lists seven different things, <clears throat> seven different steps in which our lifelong zeal or passion is like a fire. And if we were to go around the room this morning and I were to ask you, what is it that, what are the steps to build or to make and to have a fire? Let me, let me touch on them just very quickly. I think we could get them if we went around the room. But you have to prepare the fire, prepare the ground. You have to ignite it. You need to add fuel. You might need to protect it, maybe from wind or rain. You use it, you spread it in the sense that you share its heat, not necessarily that we would spread the fire around, uh, but then you would tend to it as well. You've got to keep it going. All those things sound familiar to you, right? If you've ever been a part of building a fire. Can you already see how preparing it, igniting it, adding fuel, tending it, all those things translate into zeal and being a Christian? So what we want to do this morning in our next few moments together is really think about the first step in preparation, and then again come back next week and we'll we'll hit on some of the others as we think about what it really takes to build lifelong zeal. I would suggest to you this morning that to begin... We must find our starting point. How do you build a lifelong zeal? Well, you got to know where you are when you start. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 5, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul would say, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Let me, let me tell you why I think this is important. I think this is important in, as we think about lifelong zeal right here, right now, this morning, because as I look around this room, most of you are Christians and have been Christians for some time. So if you're in a position where you realize you need to build your zeal and you maybe need to do a better job of having a lifelong zeal, some people would suggest that the place that you begin is by becoming a Christian. Well, what about the rest of us? We're already Christians. I mean, the the act of baptism, that step of being obedient by being baptized, yes, that sometimes starts the process. But does that leave the rest of us out here hanging? What are we going to do? Well, I would suggest that we can still build a lifelong zeal, but we must find our starting point. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One thing that we want to do next week is to think about Peter. And take a look at at lifelong passion and zeal through the life of Peter. Well, in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, as we think about Peter and the preparation that Peter needed, you may recall this story that that four fishermen are called as disciples. Peter and some of his buddies have been out fishing all night. They've not caught anything. They're frustrated, as any good fisherman is when they're not catching anything. Jesus walks up and says, well, just go fish. Verse number four, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. And of course, Simon Peter says, you know, trying to be respectful, but no, Lord, you're you're crazy, this is not working, why would we do that? But as they do, we know that they make a great catch. So much so, it requires another boat, the net is close to breaking. And in verse number eight, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Think of the many wonderful things that Peter did in his life. Think about some of the moments that he was a part of. Not only was he a part of denying Jesus three times, as we usually think about, but we turn over just a few pages in our Bibles, and there he is in Acts chapter 2. There he is in Acts, later in Acts, as he is opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter is a part of all these great moments. We've detailed the great moments of his zeal. But it all began with a starting point. And what I would suggest to you this morning is that his starting point began, began with self-examination and humility. Self-examination and humility. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Self-examination. And where is he when he makes that statement? But he's at Jesus' knees, probably on his knees in humility. I think this is such a powerful thought for us because if we truly want to build a passion, if we really want to have a zeal for God, if we are serious about committing to him and his cause, then we better start with some self-examination and humility. Nobody who thinks they've got it all figured out, nobody who says, well, I'm good, I can then go forward is ready to begin in service, in having a passion. Peter lays forth a great foundation of preparation when he goes down to his knees in humility and recognizes his position. We struggle with self-examination, if we're honest. Most of us would say, well, you know, I've had these thoughts or I've acted these ways, but it's really okay. We talked this morning in our class here in the auditorium about holiness. Well, some people equate that with perfection. They say, well, I can't be that, so I'm okay. Self-examination, it's hard. And even further. We are at this point when we consider building a passion, as we said just a few moments ago, not as new Christians. We are asking this question about lifelong zeal as people who have been serving God or attempting to serve God for some time or a decent amount of time. So what do we do? How do we find our starting point? Well, we begin begin with self-examination and humility. That's tough. It takes some time and consideration But I hope that you would consider that this morning if you really want to build a lifelong zeal or a lifelong passion for God. As we consider preparation this morning, the second thing we might say that a person needs to do is to prepare their environment. Now, I have it as the first step here because we kind of maybe agree that finding your starting point is, is something that needs to be done. But then in building a fire, let's go back to that example for just a moment. To build a fire, you must remove any trash or debris from the area, and you must make a spot, or we might say in context of our words this morning, purify a spot to have a fire. It doesn't take a lot of work sometimes. Maybe you're building upon an area that's already had a fire in it before, but usually it takes some preparation, some preparing, some purifying of the environment. I would suggest this morning for our thinking that we can't know the answer. But how many people have truly prepared their heart before becoming a Christian? I don't think we can know that because we don't, can't truly see inside someone. But how many people have truly prepared their environment, prepared their heart before becoming a Christian? I'm not suggesting that we should make everyone wait. Or that a person needs to be perfect before they can be baptized. But how does the Bible describe this example? But as counting the cost. Preparing. Purifying. You know, we can make a lot of people wet. We got a lot of water. We can dunk people down in it and they can get wet. But how many people are truly prepared to become a Christian? And truly purified their environment? Now again, I don't mean that everybody has it all figured out. A lot of us, some of you are like me, we were very young. I'm amazed sometimes to think whether or not I was ready, but we were young. Were we really prepared? And I'm not suggesting that you would question that in any means. But yeah, some people can get into studying and want to be baptized without really thinking about purifying their environment. Now, we want to take a look this morning in 2 Kings chapter 23. And you may want to turn over there because we're going to point out several verses Because when we think about preparing or purifying our environment, 2 Kings 23 gives us a great and absolutely wonderful crash course on cleaning house, if you will. How do we count the cost? How do we purify our environment? How do we know that we are ready to build a lifelong zeal? We've got to clean house. We've got to purify. In 2 Kings chapter 23 and really back into chapter 22, Josiah begins to reign in Judah. Verse 1 of chapter 22 tells us that Josiah, speaking of young people, was just eight years old when he became king. But we also read that he does what is right in the sight of the Lord. We know from chapter 22 that Hilkiah, the priest, finds the book of the law. And as we open chapter 23, the book of the law is going to be read before the people. And then there is a lesson in purifying. Because as we have said before, you can read this book. You can open it up and turn and read the words and maybe even understand the story, so to speak. But to really apply it takes some effort. And so Josiah is going to say, we're not just going to read. We are going to purify. We are going to clean house. And if, if it's up to me as the leader of the people at this moment to help them build a passion for God, we have got to clean house. And it begins in verse number four. The first thing that we have to do is get rid sometimes of physical objects. Notice in verse 4 that there were articles that were made for Baal and for Asherah. And they are going to be brought out of the temple. They are going to be burned outside of Jerusalem. And then their ashes are going to be carried away. When we think about purifying our environment, sometimes we have to get rid of the physical objects. What are the articles that we need to be rid of? Is it a Netflix account or some type of social media account that gets in the way of us serving faithfully? Is it a laptop or computer that maybe is hidden away at the house that needs to be out in an open space so that we can faithfully and in a Christian way use it to to use the Internet for things, but when it's hidden, we're susceptible sometimes to doing things we shouldn't be doing? Is it a boat, a set of golf clubs? a membership at some place. What is it in your life? Because we're all different. We all have different things, but what is the article or the object that sometimes gets in the way of us being faithful? And if we're truly going to purify our environment, we've got to get rid of the physical objects. Number two, we've got to get rid sometimes of the people who promote sin. In verse number five, we've gotten rid of the articles, but verse five says, then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places. We got to get rid of people sometimes. Charles began to touch on some of these things in our lesson again in the auditorium this morning, but there are people sometimes that we've got to get rid of. Is it family? Is it friends? He quoted and mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 33, "Evil company corrupts good habits." Is it family? Is it friends? Is there someone who you have so much history with that you can't seem to let go? We've been friends forever. But they're constantly bringing you down. It's hard. But sometimes we've got to remove the people who promote the sinful lifestyle. Maybe we need to get rid of the places where you sin. Notice verses 7 through 10 of 2 Kings 23. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, the ritual booths, the high places, all of these things Josiah is going to remove because sometimes it's the objects, sometimes it's the people, and sometimes it's the places. You know, recovering alcoholics don't usually go to bars to spend time because they know that they can't handle it. It's, it's tough. It's a place that they shouldn't be. Let's take it a step further. Is there a girls' night that maybe you need to not be a part of? Or even a place like the hair salon where there's a lot of gossip and things that are being talked about? Is there a sports event where you lose your cool every time you go and you don't act like a Christian and you can't handle being there because you are not going to be the person you need to be? We could list a whole lot of other examples. Men, women, children, adults, all of us. Parents, doesn't matter. Is there a place where you are more likely to sin that you need to avoid? That's certainly possible. Let's go further in 2 Kings 23. Sometimes we need to get rid of the passing benefits. Look at verse number 11 of 2 Kings 23. Then he, Josiah, removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. At the entrance to the house of the Lord, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And if you're reading this, we might say, wait a minute, he got rid of the horses and the chariots? Couldn't those things be a benefit? He could have repurposed those things, couldn't he? They were assets, probably even militarily. They could have used those things. But he wanted to get rid of all of it. Nothing hanging around that had been attached to these sinful ways or these sinful people, and he wanted to get rid of all of it. His faith is in God, not in horses. And we have little things sometimes that don't seem like much, but we have a hard time getting rid of. And when we think about the little things that don't seem like much that we have a hard time getting rid of, there is nothing that you could let go of in this life that compares to what you gain in Christ Jesus. That's what we've got to remember. Remember? Horses, chariots, other things that give us some benefit that don't seem like a big deal, we've got to get rid of anything that gives us passing benefits that get in the way of us having the eternal benefits that are found in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the last one, one more. We need to get rid of those pieces forever. Notice verse number 12. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah... Had made and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down. And I don't know what version you're looking at, but mine says pulverized. The king broke down and pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Not only do we have to get rid of these things, but we've got to get rid of them forever. Pulverized, smashed, dust, no more. If we really want to have a lifelong zeal, it begins with preparation, and preparation begins with purifying our environment, our hearts, our lives. Romans 12 and verse number 9, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And one more thing before we leave 2 Kings 23. Not only must we get rid of all these things in all these ways, but then there's a void in our life. And I would suggest for your thinking this morning, that we need to replace them with proper practices. Verses 21 through 23. Notice specifically verse 21. The people say, we have all this stuff, or we've had it, now it's gone. What do we do? And the king commanded all the people, saying, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant." Josiah removed all the negative, all the evil, all the bad things. It is prepared, but there's a void. And he immediately fills it with good. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. If we truly want to clean house to purify our lives, maybe we just need to consider all these steps that we just talked about. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not fun. But if we just do part of the work, and then try to build a fire, build a lifelong zeal, we're going to have problems. It's not going to take. It's not going to work. And I want to leave you with one final thought here. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 23. Revelation chapter 23, because I would suggest that maybe the final thing that we need to do is to avoid, at all costs, being lukewarm. The book that, we're, that I was studying that I want to pre- uh, present some of this to you out of, the book takes the position that if we want to uncover our starting point, we would benefit from a discussion of lukewarm Christians versus zealous Christians. Now, I know you're familiar with the concept of lukewarm. In the Danley household, we call it the Danley shower scale. You see, when my wife takes a shower, she wants new skin when she gets out because it's going to be burning hot and it's going to burn off all of her skin that she's got. I don't know that I prefer it lukewarm. She says I do. But I like it a little bit cooler when I get in the shower, usually. But, you know, that's what we call it in our house. It's the shower scale. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it lukewarm? Maybe you remember, I was thinking about this as it was summertime. You remember playing outside when you were a a child at school? Maybe playing kickball out in the field. Everybody's playing kickball. Game's over and everybody races to the water fountain. And you want to be the first one to the water fountain. But if you're the first one to the water fountain on June the 5th, as you go to get a drink of water, usually you get that lukewarm water. And even though you're hot and you're sweaty and you're just looking for some respite from the heat, as the first one until the the, uh, water fountain kicks in, you only get the lukewarm water. And you want to spit it out until the cold water kicks in. When we think about Revelation chapter 3 and the discussion that is had there by Jesus about the church at Laodicea, the discussion is simply about lukewarmness. You remember. And the point of what we just said is that lukewarm liquid, the problem with lukewarm liquid is that it doesn't make a difference. Let me give you a couple other examples. Think about lemonade, ice cold lemonade in the middle of July. You are so hot and you want something so cold to drink. Think about the winter you've been outside, we don't get much snow around here, but maybe you've been outside in the cold weather or the snow, you come back inside, what do you want? You want hot chocolate, not lukewarm chocolate, because lukewarm liquid doesn't make a difference. If you're cold and you want something hot, you get something that's just kind of, meh, it's no good. If it's July the 4th and you're burning up in the 100 degree weather and you want something cold and you get lukewarm lemonade, it's no good. Lukewarm liquid doesn't make a difference. You know, that's not the only place Jesus talked about this. What about Matthew chapter 5? What about light that is hidden? Well, nobody lights a lamp and hides it under the basket, right? What about salt that doesn't have flavor? Well, that's sometimes the way that it goes. Let me give you a few things real quick here about lukewarm Christians. How would we describe lukewarm Christians? Lukewarm Christians love God but not first, and they assume only extreme Christians seek God first 100% of the time. Lukewarm Christians believe religion is a good and important thing to have in life, but that it shouldn't consume them. Lukewarm Christians love others in theory, but in practice, they do very little for strangers or outcasts or others. Lukewarm Christians have good intentions to participate in good deeds someday, but they don't redeem their time or resources or take action. Lukewarm Christians enjoy hearing stories about people who live zealously for God. But those stories never really inspire change and greater zeal in their own lives. Lukewarm Christians are often silent about their faith. Lukewarm Christians settle into a one-sided religion. Lukewarm Christians lean on their own strength instead of putting their full faith in God. And here's the thing. The most deceptive thing about lukewarm Christians, the lukewarm lifestyle, is that it looks pretty good at first glance, right? I mean, lukewarm Christians come to services. They're here. Lukewarm Christians carry their Bible around, so on the surface it looks great. They're not awful people who do terrible things, but here's the problem. Lukewarm Christians can't make a difference in the world around them. When we talk about cold lemonade or hot chocolate, you want something that's going to make a difference. Lukewarm Christians can't make a difference. Thus, it's why Jesus says in Revelation 3, I would spew you, vomit you out of my mouth. What a terrible, terrible picture. How do you build a passion for God? Well, we begin this morning by considering that we must find our starting point. It includes avoiding lukewarm Christianity. We must purify our environment and clean house. But let me ask you as we conclude, what is it you're passionate about? Is it your job? Maybe it's your job. Is it your family? Is it your sports team or teams? Is it your political party? And by the way, I'd make a plug for Cliff Goodwin's lesson from Tuesday night if you've not had a chance to watch that online from North Hamilton. What are you passionate about? What are the signs of passion? Well, it's time. We give our time to that, that we're passionate about. We give our attention to the things that we're passionate about. We are committed. We are engaged with the things we are passionate about. So do you feel that way about God? If not, we want to build a lifelong passion. That begins this morning by asking you whether you are not, whether or not you are committed to God. You see, putting on Christ in baptism is that important step. The Lord then adds us to his church, and we are ready then to begin serving faithfully, to begin this lifelong passion. Maybe you're here this morning, you need to become a Christian. We'll be singing to encourage you. But as we said a few moments ago, I look around this room, and almost all of us are Christians. So where do you stand? Do you need to build a lifelong zeal, a lifelong passion? Because for so long you have been lukewarm. Not making a difference in the world around you. We seem to encourage you as well. Maybe there's sin of a public nature in which you can come forward, and one of our elders would love to pray with you and for you. The congregation would love to pray with you and for you. Maybe it's something else that you're struggling with in this life that you need help with. Maybe there's something amiss. Maybe you need the encouragement of the congregation of this church to encourage you in your walk, to help you be stronger to help you have that fire, that passion, that zeal that should burn within you, zealous for good works, as we read a few moments ago. It can begin this morning. We're going to come back next week. We're going to talk about it, God be willing, some more. But it can begin this morning, either by becoming a Christian or coming back to him. And if you stand in need of anything, we sing to encourage you, even now as we stand together and as we sing.